0: think about as we start. I'm going to read uh, all of chapter 5 and parts of chapter 6. Feel free to follow along up there as I do. We have a lot of things to talk about and uh, I think they're pretty exciting. Starting in chapter 1 verse 5. Now as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over Their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. And at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Think about that for a second. How is that possible? So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeoth Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they'd come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness, until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey." And so it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal, which means to roll away, to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. The day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Joshua was shut up inside. Excuse me, not Joshua. Jericho was shut up inside, inside and outside, because of the people of Israel. None went out. None came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city 7 times and the priests shall blow the trumpets and when they make a long blast with the ram's horn when you hear the sound of the trumpet then all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up every straight every one straight before him so Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them take up the ark of the covenant let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord and he said to the people go forward march around the city let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua commanded the people, the seven priests blowing, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. And I'm not going to read all this. Basically, they do what they're supposed to. And we'll pick up in verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day. They marched around the city in the same manner seven times. So this is now the seventh day. They've done this six days. It was on that day they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time when the priests had blown the trumpet, Joshua said to the people, Shout, The Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that's within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute, and all who are within her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we were sent. Let's skip down to verse uh, 21. So this, the wall falls down. Verse 21 tells us they did as they were supposed to. They devoted all the city to destruction. Men and women, young and old, Ox, sheep, donkeys with the edge of the sword. And then verse 24 and 25. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and of iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's house and all who belonged to her, Joshua was saved alive. And she lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out, sent to spy out Jericho. All right. I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Great Father, we uh, we have behar- before us uh, a text that is incredibly difficult for our modern ears, and uh, nevertheless, you've given it to us, your people, and we pray that you would help us to see wonderful things in your law, and uh, help us to see Jesus and press these gospel realities into our heart. We ask, Amen. Well, I'm going to start uh, after that reading with a with an illustration. Almost all of you are pr- likely to know and. Probably enjoy. Uh, so, in *The Princess Bride*, right? Um, after the Men in Black's been rescued from the pit of despair, as they're spying out, uh, you know, Prince Humperdinck is that his name? His castle. They they pop the magic mill, magic magic pill into uh, the almost dead Men in Black's mouth, and he springs back to life. Well, not really springs, but uh, you know slowly awakens. Uh, his mouth is very much awake. And uh, he immediately asks, who are you? Are we enemies? And uh, Anigo and, uh, explains, uh, no, let me explain. No, there's too much. Let me sum up. And he basically summarizes the present state of things. We've got 30 minutes to break in, to rescue uh, Buttercup before the marriage, and to escape. And I've got to kill a guy while I'm at it. And, uh, and so uh, the man in black, doing what he does, says, uh, what are our liabilities? And uh, spying what's in front of him, he says, "There's but one working castle gate. It's guarded by sixty men." And the man in black says, "What are our assets?" And the answer is great: your brains, Fezzik's strength, my steel. It's, it's a great line. He sounds, you know, confident. And uh, he says, "That's it? Impossible. If only we had a wheelbarrow, that would be something." And uh, and uh, and he goes, "Like, what do, where do we put that wheelbarrow from the albino?" And uh, why didn't you tell me the first time you had a wheelbarrow? And, uh, and he sighs, and then he's you know sort of wistfully thinking. Now, if, and if only we had a Holocaust cloak. And uh, Fezzik pulls out a Holocaust cloak. Says, "Will this do? Uh, I got it at Miracle Max's." I-, I love that scene for lots of reasons. One, it's part of a great movie. But two, it's it's uh, you know for uh, uh, don't get offended for a made up story. Okay, um, it's not real. Uh, it's still, nevertheless, very true and realistic and representative of what we would do in a similar situation, facing an impossible, insurmountable uh, task like this. We would ask, "Who's who's for us? Who's against us?" And if we're Christians, we'd ask, "Is is God really with us in this?" And then we would take inventory of our liabilities and our assets. Uh, is that scene closed? Does anyone remember the last thing that said? They they, they sort of dark and they wander off to the side. It's Fezzik. and he as he walks off, that he says, "I hope we win." Do you remember that? Yeah, I mean, he, he's, he's a sweethearted guy, and is genuine. But they, you know, there's, there's there's no assurance there. There's no confidence. And uh, if you consider what the the people in in the text here. Are facing. You can imagine something like that. Or we, as we face our instrumental obstacles, we we wonder, what are our what are our liabilities? What are our strengths? How can we possibly do this? And uh, we may despair, or we may be overconfident. But are we really, are we really assured uh, beyond just a wild hope that we'll make it? I think what we often do It's quite natural I think Is we'll, we'll look at one of these situations that we're in Something insurmountable that we have to get through And we'll take stock of our ability And uh, we'll ask ourselves Self how will we ever overcome this And, uh, and then we'll you know, Try to come up with a reasonable conclusion Whether we have it within us or not And that's very natural But, but I think it's possible That that very question can be very problematic Spiritually speaking Because if we're not careful when we ask that question, we will miss, we will miss and completely misidentify some of the greatest obstacles. We think often that our greatest obstacles are out there. What our text is telling us is that more often than not, some of our greatest obstacles are so close we can't see them. They're right in here. They're right in here. Our our sin and our self-sufficiency. And our belief that we're in the middle of the story. And, uh... And and that's a great liability. And if we're not careful as we apprise the situation and try to figure out whether or not we can do this or not, we'll also uh, overlook our greatest asset, that there's a God who overcomes. That's what we're going to see tonight. This text shows off a God who perfectly overcomes for his people. So I'm going to talk about this in a couple different ways. Uh, We see his grace that renews and removes a God that disables and displaces, and a God that destroys and delivers. And uh, there are outlines on the sides there, but I'll, I'll give it to you one more time. If anybody, anybody takes notes. Okay, grace that renews and... I don't care if you take notes or not. If it made it sound like I was disappointed in you for not taking notes. That was my intent, but actually don't care if you take notes or not. Um, grace that renews and removes. God that disables and displaces and a God that destroys and delivers. I'm going to move to this first one pretty quickly. A grace that renews and removes. Verse 1 in chapter 5 tells us, hey, the people, the nations nearby have heard what just happened. God has split the Red Sea. They crossed in dry land. They are terrified of the presence of the Lord and Israel's people. And, uh, you know, if you have any kind of a military mind, you're thinking, now is the time to strike. They've got, they've got nothing. They're, they're wilting away. And instead what we have is uh, God in verse 2 saying, well, let's break out the, uh, the surgical tools and uh, have a little circumcision party. And uh, this is where it's right, no matter who you are, to say what? Now, I know it's possible, because I've learned this over, y- over the years, that college students can be incredibly naive. So it's possible that some of you don't even know what I'm talking about when I say the word circumcision, Right? No one's going to admit this. Okay, um, but, uh, you know, uh, how do I put this delicately? Forget being delicate. Uh, circumcision is a rather simple surgical procedure whereby the foreskin of the, the male's uh, genitalia is, is removed. And uh, this was a prescription from God in Genesis 17 as a sign of God's people. And I'll explain why later on. But here, he, in verse 2, tells Joshua, we need to circumcise all the people again. And, uh, you know, what I just said about the procedure makes it clear that you don't circumcise someone who's been circumcised again. Like, you don't regrow that. Um, He's talking about the whole people. There's something about the nation that requires this. And what's happened? What's happened is, uh, first in verse 3, they do it. Joshua's obedient. And, uh, I don't know where you're from. If any of you are from like a small town like me, where you're sort of—I'm not embarrassed, but I have a weird name. I'm from Appomattox, um, it's just hard to spell. But it could be worse. You could be from Gibeah Ha'irahloth, which means—which <laughs> means the hill of foreskins. That's what it means. It means it means Joshua did what they were supposed to, and like a hundred thousand men and children and old men, forty-year-old men, were circumcised, and they like they're on. And they decided to name the place The Hill of Foreskins um, So um, Just be glad you're not from there And uh, why is this necessary at this point point? And verses 4 to 6 explain why That the old generation That had been brought out by God Had broken the covenant And, uh, and now they've died in the wilderness, as as God had told them they would do, they broke the covenant. I'll explain a little bit more what that means, and uh, they were doomed to perish in the wilderness and never enter into the promised land until they were all gone, every single one. And that everyone that had come out and been born since then had not been circumcised. And so, verse seven tells us it's a new generation. And this new generation needs the sign of the covenant. And this is what God prescribed way back in Genesis 17 that those who embrace God from the heart as his people, that's an internal reality, are supposed to have an external sign of their relationship. And in the Old Testament, that is circumcision, if you're a male. So you have an external mark of an internal reality. Now, let me make this as clear for you as I possibly can what's going on here. Okay. So in seminary, uh, seminary is grad school for pastors. And uh, you do weird things like read other people's sermons. And I'm reading this guy's sermon before he shares it. And I'm reading his illustration. And I have to say, as I'm reading it, I'm like, wait, is this about you? He's like, yeah, yeah. Wait, explain to me what just happened. Because I'm reading his his story, this illustration, and it talks about him remarrying his wife. I was like, wait, you like, renewed your vows? He's like, no, we got remarried. I'm like, because he's like 30 years old. It's like, explain. He's like, well... We got married young, and we were foolish and stupid and awful, especially me, and we got divorced. And five years later, God did great work in our lives, and I went back to my wife and told her we should get married again. And she was good enough to take me back, and so we remarried. It's a great story. I actually know someone else who's done something very similar to that. I just learned his story recently. And that's sort of what's going on here. That God came to his people and rescued them and said, hey, let's go live together in this land. But on the way, his people decided, we actually rather do whatever we want. And they were terrible partners. That's what Israel uh, was like in, in the wilderness. And uh, so God doesn't abandon them. He doesn't forsake them. He provides for them, if you will. Uh, they are separated but not divorced. He sends checks every month and he spends time with the kids. He tries to be a good dad, but they do not enjoy the relationship as it was supposed to be. Until now. And now that generation's gone, and they're in the land, God is saying to his people, well, let's get married again. Let, let's go through this ceremony. It's you and me again. Because this generation wants to listen and love him. They do, from the heart. Let's do it again. Let's, take, let's, do, the, let's do the O's. Let's take the signs. Let's sing the rings. And, and then they celebrate the Passover, which is like the anniversary, the yearly anniversary. Let's, let's throw the party. And what you have here is a renewal of the relationship. It's, I know it looks bloody and weird. It's beautiful. God is bringing His people back, renewing their love, celebrating it, and this is all happening like, you know, there's a there's a war to be fought over there. And uh, but this is more important to Him. Now, here's the question I have to ask you, and you probably should be asking me. That's great. What does guy do with me? And here's why we have to talk about circumcision. That was a joke. Um, no, we don't have to talk about circumcision. <laughs> um, But it's related. All right, so we learn in this text that it's possible for God's people, the Israelites, to have the external signs but lack the internal reality. That's what happened to the older generation. They had the sign of circumcision. They did what they were supposed to do. But the text tells us they did not listen to his voice. Verses 5 and 6. They did all the things on the outside. They had all the boxes checked off, but Internally, the inner reality was missing. They did not love him. They did not listen. And this should at least, if not scare all of us that grew up in the church and have all the boxes checked off, it should at least make you stop and assess for a moment. It's possible that you've been baptized and you go to church and you take the Lord's Supper and you do all those things you're supposed to. But do you love him and do you listen? Does your inside match your outside? God wants the internal reality, not just the signs on the outside. He wants the heart. He wants your love. And your love looks like faithfulness, loving him back. It's also possible, it's also possible, this is great when this happens, that uh, you have the inside but not the outside yet. You have come to know him. You love him. You want to follow him. But uh, you've, you've not taken on any of the signs yet. You, you, you're not quite sure what this church thing is. You're not sure what baptism is. You don't know what the Lord's Supper is. And you don't know what you're supposed to do. And if that's your case, I would say, friend, it's time. It's time to join the team. It's time to put on the uniform. That's what it is. To declare to the world you're part of God's people. And to take the, to take the family meal together regularly. This is God, what God wants you to do. To, uh, to, to match the outside to the inside. And to join us in doing that. So if that's your story and where you are, I would love to talk to you about that. So uh, here we see a grace that renews and removes. And uh, I think it's pretty cool that like, as they enter the promised land, facing enemies, this is what God does first with his people. All right, lots of things to talk about. Now, a God that disables and displaces. It's really interesting here that with the uh, you know, the Canaanites terrified, that God would pick this time. I mean, I, I would be thinking, strategy-wise, it's time to strike. And God says, yes, let's strike you. Strike you <laughs> right, in the, uh, right in the, right in the, yeah, those places. And uh, and so what we have is like alliteration at its worst. Wounded weenie warriors. They're, <laughs> they're uh, literally for three days, they can't do anything. I, if, I mean, if, if any, anybody in Jericho knew what was going on, they'd be like, hey, you won't believe what they did. They like decided to cut themselves in their most vulnerable places. Let's just like find anyone and go out there and attack them now. Like, they could not be more vulnerable than right now. And, uh, man, I think this tells us a lot about the kind of God we serve. A couple things that are really important, actually. Uh, one, that God cares a lot more about their faithfulness and, and his relationship with them than their fighting acumen and, and their military preparation. He cares about their heart and their relationship with him more than what they're about to do and what they need to do. It's really important to him. Um, I also think this is a, a wonderful, wonderful um, antidote to one of our favorite, favorite, favorite as Americans not Bible saying that we think is a Bible saying. Perhaps our American's favorite Bible verse um, besides God helps those who help themselves, not in the Bible, is uh, this one. God will never give you more than you can handle. That is not in the Bible, friends. Nowhere. I dare you to find it. I will give you I will, give you, I will give you all the money I have. <laughs> I'm a poor pastor that raises money for a living. Um, but it's not in there. We're told that we won't be tempted beyond what we can handle, but not given circumstantially more than we can handle. And, uh, man, we would love to think that's true because we are all about self-actualization and self-sufficiency. And the text right here tells us, it's a great indication, God's not after that for us. They have to go into battle. And he wounds them in the most vulnerable place. He is after developing their dependency and their trust. He's after their dependency and their trust. And, uh, and this lesson will be deepened as we go on. So he disables them. And it's a grace that he might show them that he is good and powerful. And they can trust him. And, and next we see how he displaces them in uh, verse 13 for some reason Joshua we're told that he's out by Jericho we don't know how close that is maybe maybe he's out there praying maybe he's doing some distant recon maybe he's just sort of wondering verse 16 chapter 16 verse 1 tells us it's a fortified city maybe he's just sort of looking at that thing and saying how How are we going to do that high thick walls this could take years We don't know what he's doing. Um, But if he's wondering how they're going to do it, what we find in verse uh, 2 in chapter 6 is he won't. He won't do it. The text tells us that God tells him, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give it to you. You see that in verse 2 in chapter 6? The Lord comes and says, I will give you the city. It's not up to Joshua in the end. He actually did not fight the battle of Jericho. He did. We'll talk about it in a moment. He marched around in a circle, and uh, and God gives him the city. But before all that happens, we have this very interesting, strange encounter. He's out there by the city, wherever that is, and he encounters a warrior, which is not that strange. Like, we're in the middle of a military campaign, um, so you'd expect a warrior. But it's strange because this is a strange warrior. First of all, he can't answer questions correctly. Are you for us or against us? You know, pretty binary. There's it's like two possible answers. And his answer makes clear that Joshua's question is wrong. For us or against us? Or as we say in the south, for us or against and, us? Um, and I'm glad I don't live in the south anymore. And, uh, and he says, no. See that? No. Well, that wasn't an option. <laughs> and it, it wasn't. And he goes on to say, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And when he says this, Joshua is smart enough, not just as a military man, but as a a priestly assistant, a prophet to Moses to know, oh, oh, you're not talking about us. You're talking about the heavenly hosts, God's angelic messengers. And, And Joshua falls on his face. That's what the text says. He falls down and worships. He doesn't know exactly who he's talking to, but he knows this is no normal human being. This is some kind of divine being and, uh, and he says, what do you have to say to me? And uh, I don't know what Joshua was expecting. He could have been expecting plans. He doesn't get plans. He, he gets God's presence. He could have been expecting a list of how-tos. Instead, he gets this simple message that he's in the presence of a holy being. Take off your shoes. The place where you're standing, standing is holy. And uh, Joshua, you know, he apprenticed to Moses. He, he's a smart guy, I would say. I've heard this before. This is what the Lord said to Moses in the burning bush so many years ago. This is God himself present at the moment. Father, Son, Spirit, one of them. And uh, speaking to Joshua. And uh, instead of getting plans or on how to, he's getting God's holy presence. And a message of comfort. Uh, chapter divisions are terrible. Uh, I don't mean that. Whoever, thousand years ago, thank you, whatever saints gave us these chapter divisions. They, they're not terrible. Otherwise, we'd have trouble finding it. But this chapter division between 5 and 6 probably shouldn't be there because I have every reason to believe that what's being said in verse 2 to 5 comes from the same person that Joshua meets on the plains. That this commander of the Lord is speaking. He continues to speak. He, we, we're told what Jericho is like. And this commander says, I'm, I'm going to give you Jericho. I'm going to give it to you. And then he tells them how it will be done. So this is wonderful comfort. But what all this does, think about this, if, if, you're Jer- if, you're, if you're Joshua out there with a bunch of people that just got circumcised, they can't even stand up, and, uh, and you're thinking, like, how are we going to take this city? What this whole encounter, what the Lord does is it displaces you from the center of the story. In other words, it's not up to Joshua, and he knows it. It's not ultimately up to him. It's not ultimately his battle. Uh, God is not on his side. He fortunately is on God's side because God is the center of the story. That's what happens here. God's declaring that he's the center of the story. And it's so easy for us in our daily dramas uh, to assume we're the main actors. We, we do this so naturally. We're just naturally self-centered as creatures. And, uh, and, uh, and if we're Christians or religious, we, we tend to put ourselves in the central role. And God, God gets written into the script. He's a great supporting actor. Um, but he's a supporting actor, and his job is to, you know, support us, bless us, push us over the edge, encourage us, give us just what we need, correct us. But we're in the center. I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, good music, which means usually I hate country music. Um, And sorry, yes. But uh, as of late, I have become a big fan of Jason Isbell, fantastic songwriter. In concert next week, if you have a lot of money to waste, not waste, invest wisely. And um, he wrote a song a couple years ago called "24 Frames." it has got this fantastic chorus, and I think this is the way we often think. You thought God was an architect. Now you know He's something like a pipe bomb, ready to blow. And everything you built, it's all for show goes up in flames in 24 frames. Like just in the moment you've been building this great plan for how you're going to achieve, arrive, succeed, and you thought God was an architect that you could hire to make your dreams come true. He is far too powerful for you to contain. Who who whoever said you could just hire him to make your dreams come true? He is the great center reality. He's in charge, and uh, if if we're fortunate, we get to play supporting roles in his story. Uh, consider consider your life drama. Consider the way you think about your life and about your life in front of you and your problems. Your own, let's call them your Jericho walls. Who is at the center of your story? Is it you? Writing God in as a minor supporting role. He's going to give you a little divine push every now and then to bless you and get you over. Or is the most high and holy God who has his own plans and is kind enough to come down here and take an interest in us? Is he in the center of your story? In other words, has God displaced you yet? Have you learned that life is not all about you? But him. He's in the middle. All right, I'm going to do this last one. And frankly, I'm going to admit that this last point is the one that some of you are really looking forward to, um, either because you can't wait to get mad at me or you just want to know how I'm going to handle it. But we have to deal with the fact that God destroys this city completely, everything, everyone. And uh, I'm only going to deal with this partly. And when we came in, you probably wanted me to spend a lot of time on it. But now that we've been here for a while, you're hoping probably I'm going to do it Briefly, and I'm going to do it briefly, and then we'll come back to it some next week. But I do want to talk about how God destroys the city and delivers. Okay, and I'll I'll give you a little bit tonight and some more next week. And hopefully that will uh, assuage you, at least temporarily. All right. um, So this this commander of the Lord that meets with Joshua does give him in chapter six, the plan, some plans. And they're really strange military plans. Um, perhaps the strangest you can imagine. And uh, what he tells Joshua to tell the people to do is basically to form a marching worship band. I'm not kidding. They're a a marching worship band and march around the city for a week. And then on the last day, do it sometimes. There's all kinds of theological significant clues going on here that we don't have time to get into. I just want to cut to the chase and make a few clear things. First of all, they're a marching worship band. They're really not allowed to do anything threatening. They're not even allowed to shout to the seventh day. The seventh day, you can shout. Don't shout. I mean, they're really explicit. Don't even shout to the seventh day. So they're just walking around worshiping. Uh, what is central in all this, this, this whole text, and if you're in the city of Jericho and you look out there, you would see this. What is central is the ark. The formation of the army and the military and the priests and even of the text says it ten times. It's the ark. This box, wherein God, above which God is supposed to dwell. This is where God is pleased, according to his own designs, to to dwell with his people. And and so what we have then is these hosts, 40,000 people or more, march around the city all the time as a large worship processional, whereby God is on display, okay? He's on display. He's, wa- he's marching around the city with his people on display, and the people of Jericho can sit there and watch. And they're, and they're probably thinking, what a- this is the weirdest thing ever. Um, but they're also probably wondering, like any curious person would be, what in the world's in that box? And they've heard about the God of Israel. It's the God that splits the seas. And uh, it's the God of these desert nomads who promised him the land. But they should know as they watch around as he marches around over and over, this is a powerful God. This, this is a holy God, not a God to be trifled with. And, uh, and after seven days, they should have picked up another one. Maybe he's patient. And uh, they don't know the half of that one, that he's patient. We go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, 400 years ago. And, and God promises Abraham this land they're entering. And he says, I'm going to be patient with those people 400 years 400 years, Genesis fifteen sixteen. you can look at it. And after 400 years, they finally come into the land, and these people haven't repented. They still burn their children to false gods and, and uh, do uh, all kinds of really quite perverse things. If you really want to know about it, we can talk about it some other time. But uh, they've not repented. And once he arrives there, he's patient for another seven days. He puts himself on display for them to see for seven days. To give them a chance to repent. This is what God's like. We're told this in Second Peter. He is forbearing that people may repent. He sends a prophet named Jonah to a city that he wants to destroy. And when Jonah goes, those people repent. None of them repent. It's a horrible place. They repent. Jonah's mad about it. But that's what God's like. He's patient. The people may repent. And the people in Jericho do not repent. They don't. It reminds me of the scene. Uh, this is what I do. I've talked about this before. I don't watch whole movies. I watch clips, uh, YouTube. But uh, have any of you seen Magnificent Seven, the most recent one? Yeah, it's a pretty good film. At the end, uh, you know, the the, the chief protagonist, uh, played by uh, Denzel Washington. That means you should all see it. Denzel Washington's in it. You should see it. Um, he uh, has tracked down, uh, you know, the chief antagonist, and uh, you know he's about to gun him down like a dog in the street. When the, uh, when the guy crawls into a church. And, and this bad guy begins to plead for mercy. And, uh, and, and Denzel approaches him as they're in a church, and he's already been wounded, and uh, lends him his hand and says, Let's pray. Now, you need to know that Denzel has every intention of killing this guy, but let's pray. And uh, you, you see this flicker of angry defiance on this man who's been pleading for mercy on his face. And uh, he's confused as well. And Denzel's character says, let's pray for my mama, whom your men raped. And, and you see this confused look of defiance. I mean, you should look at the clip yourself. Defiance is the right word. And then, uh, let's pray for my sisters, whom, whom your men murdered. And, uh, and this man who's about to die Uh, who's been pleading for mercy um, says with this wicked smile and still this defiance. I remember, I remember chism. And uh, he he goes down fighting and defiant to the end. He will not ask for forgiveness. He will not repent. And that's sort of the picture we have here in Jericho. He's been patient for 400 years. And then seven more days as he puts himself on display. And when the end finally comes, and it comes, it comes completely and swiftly. It's really if you were making a movie about this, it would be a pretty lame ending, actually. You know, we want to see we want to see fighting. And uh, the the military part of this takes up like less than half a verse. Do you notice that? There's no like glorification of the battle. There's none. When the time comes, they shout, the walls fall down, the battle is over. It's just mop up duty. God does this. He destroys this city. And uh, this is not Israel getting what they want. This is the Lord practicing his judgment at the perfect time. And so, wh- whereas, and we'll talk about this a lot next week, because this is what you're, some of you are going to be angry about, want to ask me about. Uh, some of you would think this is incredibly unjust. I would argue. He's been patient for 400 years. This is perfect justice. He's been incredibly patient. And the time has come. And frankly, if this was a military battle, man, what happens here is merciful. You say the way you would conquer an ancient city is to build up ramparts of dirt. And it might take years to actually achieve the top of that that wall. During that time, thousands of people die on both sides as you get shot down by arrows and they get picked off the wall. And during those three years, you know what happens to the people inside the city? They starve to death. They eat rats. They kill and eat their own children. I am not making this up. Josephus, Heratus, Thucydides, the you can go look. This is what war was like in the ancient world. And when God decides to execute justice, he's merciful. It's over in a, in a, in a minute. And you might not like that. I doubt you do. You probably shouldn't. But God is still merciful in his judgment. So um, I want you to see something else, though. That in the midst of bringing complete just destruction when it's time, he still delivers. <sighs> I, I don't know what this looks like. Whose who's viewpoint do you want? Someone in Jericho's or someone on Israel's? I don't know. But for either one of them, it would have been curious. Let's, let's say you're someone in Jericho. You've been watching the Israel army march around with this strange box, wondering what this God is like. And uh, you've refused to turn and worship that God. You're going to stick with it. And as the wall falls down and you're in utter confusion, you look and all around you, I mean, this wall has been there your whole life. All around you, the wall is gone. You see the plains of Gilgal and you're thinking, what in the world is happening? And then you're realizing they're coming for me. And as you spin around, you look, and like, right over there, there's a piece of the wall left. It's a curious thing. What in the world is that? And maybe before you die, you think, what the? That's that's Rahab's house. Rahab, that we talked about last week in chapter 2, the prostitute that turns to the Lord and repents and trusts in them, she lived in the wall. She lived in the wall. There's no way God could, I mean, he told her to stay in her place, hang a ribbon in her, in her doorway, in the, in the window, and that God would deliver her. That means when he brought destruction, the walls fell, her wall did not fall. He delivered her. Think about the power and the mercy, how God can be both at once, perfect judgment, and yet powerful enough to deliver his people. And that's what we have in this Lord. The one who overcomes in such a way that he can both destroy and deliver in the same moment and practice perfect judgment and mercy at the same moment. All right. Now, let me help you figure out what in the world this means for you. How is this in any way good for you? Um, A lot of ways, frankly, but uh, you probably don't want to hear them all. Let me give you at least a few. If you are a Christian, this is a pretty good picture of where we live. And I don't mean America. I mean where we live in general. That the people of Israel lived between this promised land they were supposed to inhabit, and now they have this huge first victory. God's given it to them. They still have to take the land. It's not all theirs yet. But they have every good reason to think that God is for them and been at work. And uh, they now know that God's going to fight for them. And what we have in our life as Christians is that we live between... The first great victory, Jesus' life and death, given for us in the, in the end. We believe Jesus has won the decisive battle by which we enter the promised land. And we've got work to do. But it's not all up to us. And uh, that's really important. If we think it's all up to us, then uh, we'll be exhausted and cranky and anxious. And also, we'll, we'll think these enemies out there of us, it's up to us to go out there and destroy them. It's up to us to execute judgment. But, it, it, but it's not. It's not. We're called to be like the people of Israel, to know the Lord, to be close to him, to worship him, to show him off to the world. And, and when we do that, we are enabled to, to leave to him the perfect judge, all the judgment and all the deliverance and all the work. It's our job to know him and to love him and to love our neighbors and entrust to him his perfect judgment and his perfect deliverance in its own time. And we can be confident that he will do his good will this This means friends that you, you, you can love people, you can rest, you can be assured that he will overcome the greatest obstacles that you really have and uh I think that's great. and also, let me give you one more little thing. Some of you were thinking like, "Wow, judgment this stuff's hard. how do i I don't even know if I really want to trust a God like this or know a God like this?" There's something we need to know about what's going on in this narrative that this text doesn't tell us that other texts do. And that's that this commander of the Lord is most likely the pre-incarnate Jesus. This is the second person of the Trinity, not yet in the flesh. And what this means is uh, that this one who fights for us as people in the perfect time took flesh. This is really important for us. And did so, so that he could live a perfect life. And then, when the time was right, let all his walls be knocked down by the Father. He bore all the wrath of a perfect judgment in himself for all God's people. He allowed himself to be utterly destroyed for some other people's guilt. Ours, if we trust him. This is how good... Our Lord is for us, and why we can trust Him. He is great. He comes for us. He gives His life for us, and uh, I think that's a great Lord that we can trust. I uh, I would encourage you, friends, to take notes, questions, save them up for next week, and bring them. I uh, I know some of you will have them, and uh, look forward to it. Let me pray for us. Our great Father, we pray that you would help us to see.